Today's episode is being brought to you by Goya Foods. If it's Goya, it has to be good. That's what I have a hard time with. If we just do one or the other. Sure. You know, I, I go, got it. Hey, this guy on analytics is, is not good, but he's really good on the field. You know, you got to have a balance on both yeah. on how you're evaluating players. Sacks in the morning. Sports. Money. Life. Steve Sachs. Hi, Steve Sachs here with Sacks in the Morning. And today is our long form guest. We have a great guest that's going to be on today. This is a young man, and I consider him young because he's a lot younger than me. Grew up in Southern California and had a career 11 years in the big leagues with five different teams, a couple of stints with the Cincinnati Reds. And we want to welcome to our program right now, Corky Miller. Corky, how you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Yeah, we're, we're very happy to have you. And Corky, you grew up in Ukaipa, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, probably about 60 miles east of L.A., so... I- Right below Big Bear Mountain. Yeah. Um, grew up a Dodger fan. Grew up watching you play. And, oh, gosh. You're really dating oh, me now. <laughs> really? No, it was, it was great. It was, you know, we were we were a Dodger, Dodger household um, nice. on TV, but I would spend most of my time going down to Angel Stadium. It was a little bit easier. Sure. Into Chavez Ravine over there. But, yep. uh, you know, listen to Vince Scully and all those guys, you know, <laughs> growing up and and Steve Sachs was always a name in the house. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, I got to ask you this. Now, where were you when Gibson hit the home run? Uh, I was at my, my buddy David's house. Uh-huh. And we were kind of up in the room, and we were grabbing some stuff to go back down, and his mom started yelling. We about oh. tripped coming down the stairs, and we you know saw him coming around, and they replayed it a bunch of times. And Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, everybody, everybody knows where they were when yeah. that happened. Well, they, when they were jumping around and tripping, that's what I was doing. I was on deck, and I, I was, you know, thinking about how yeah. I'm going to try to win this game. And then, boing, he hits that one out. I think, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So this this game is over. Yeah. Corky, you're down in Arizona right now. To quickly tell us about what's going down in Arizona in, at the camp. Well, you know, after the draft that you were at, they would wait for the guys to sign. And once they sign, you know, we've got uh, 15 days to put them on an active roster. Uh-huh. Well, some of these guys haven't played in, in three, four, or five weeks. So we've kind of ramping them up for these two weeks to get them ready to go play at affiliate or here in Arizona at the Complex League. Um, so we've got six position players, mm. seven position players, and uh, 12 pitchers that we've been trying to get ready. Uh, wow. Two catchers. So that's what I do here, the sure. catching coordinator. So just trying to get them, get their legs back underneath them. It's not a big, huge thing like spring training would be, but. You know, it's a couple of weeks of just trying to get them ready to go out and play. Yeah. Corky, I got to tell you, my brother David and, and you have a lot in common. My brother David was a big league catcher. I don't know if you knew that, but he caught a few years in the big leagues. And also, he had an unbelievable career in college, like you did. 377, your, your last year at UNR, you hit 356 in your college career. You were flat out killing it, as my brother was at Kasumnas River College. He wasn't yeah, yeah. drafted, and you didn't get drafted out of college. You were drafted out of high school. But how could you not get drafted, especially a catcher that could hit like that? How could you not get drafted out of college? I I, I don't understand this thing. Uh, I don't either. Uh, I have no idea. You know, maybe it was where I was at, at UNR. Just kind of let's leave it at that. But, um, yeah, I I don't know. I got lucky. Our hitting coach, Jason Gill, his brother was a scout for the Reds and mm-hmm. he asked for a favor and he called the Reds and said, Hey, do you need an old catcher that can hit? 
<laughs> and they said, sure, we got, a, we got a bunch of guys coming in. And mm. when I showed up to Billings, which is rookie ball, there right. was like nine, nine catches there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. crap. Yeah. But after about the third day, they put everybody back that were converted catchers. And then there was three of us. So, wow. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. I know what you mean about Billings, uh, Corky. I was in Lethbridge. I don't know if you guys played against Lethbridge, but I played yeah. in, in Billings, and they were just so – the Reds were always so advanced, I remember, in their farm system. They were far and away the best team in uh, in that league. They were they were really great, great, outstanding team. A lot of college guys they got down there in uh, in that league. But, Corky, on our program here, we talk a lot of po- about positivity and, you know, change your way of thinking and that type of thing. But I got to ask you about perseverance. That's, that's a really important thing, and, you know, in any walk of life. For the time that you spent in the minors, you were one of the most heralded players at the Louisville Bats. You had an unbelievable career in the minor leagues, which I know as being a former you know guy that played in the big leagues and obviously in the minor leagues, I wouldn't trade my minor league career. Some of the greatest times in my life were in the minor leagues. And I love talking about the minor league careers. And you had an unbelievable career in the minor leagues. How about that perseverance that you had to go through to get to the big leagues? Like I said, 11 years in the big leagues is great. But tell me how you did that through the minors. Yeah, you know, it was pretty quick. I I think I signed in 98. I made it to the big leagues in in 01. Mm. So it was pretty quick. I mean, as far as is. I mean, I think you spent two or three years to start off in the minor leagues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But after that, going up and down, it was just always like, what am I What am I going to do? I, mm-hmm. I love this game. I just wanted to play this game. I, I, I wouldn't think about like, well, I'm here, I'm there. You know, I'd have my goals and want to get back to the big leagues. But, you know, it was always funny. People started asking me, when are you going to start coaching? And that was probably two or three years into my career. And I said, well, whenever you guys stop giving me jobs playing. <laughs> And, you know, that, that ended up 17 years later. So, you know, it was, it was just the love of the game, the people, you know, going in and playing with guys like Tucker Barnhart Mm -hmm. or Devin Mezzarocco that, that were way younger than me, probably 10 years younger than me. Mm. And, just helping them through stuff and then watching them succeed in the big leagues. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you've helped a lot of guys out. That's for sure. And I, I know one thing that you just said, I was writing this down. I don't know if you can see this Corky. I, I wrote this down as you were speaking. I, and I circled it. I wrote love for the game. And that's just exactly what you said. That love yeah. for the game supersedes. In, I mean, there's times where I know I was riding in the, uh, in the bus with a dirty uniform on after I just blew the game. <laughs> and I was thinking about what the hell am I doing here? Why wouldn't I take that cushy scholarship to Arizona? Arizona or something. Here yeah. I am in the Meyer leagues in the middle of nowhere on that bus. You remember those days, right? Oh yeah. Except I, I was the senior out of college. I didn't have to look back and, <laughs> and think, well, I could have went to college. It yes. was, I can go back and pour concrete or, or make some houses and you know, which I did, which we, we all did before the money got really good. You had to work right. in the off season and sure. um, there'd be a lot of times I would take those long winters out in Southern California where I'm pouring concrete or, moving rocks or sure. digging holes you're going like yeah yeah this is why i play baseball yeah so. i remember the yeah. days corky i was working on the ships in west sacramento where the ships would come in from the bay and i would be hauling right 110 pound sacks of rice all day in the minor leagues like you said yeah. we had to work in the in the, in the winter time to get by but corky i wanted to ask you about the way that the game is played today obviously you were kind of in those years of transition where it was you know that old school way was the way of doing it and then it started changing a little bit you know guys weren't getting buzzed around the head anymore and you know, it was cool. It was it's cool to to pimp the home run and those type of things. 
what have you seen? Because you played kind of in that area in between. You know, the old school way was probably the way that you were taught, but then you probably saw a lot of this new way of doing it too. What's your opinion on that? You know, um, it is. I mean, I I came up, at, you know, you know, especially like Mike Sosha. That was the block blocking the plate, being sure. hard nosed, being being tough, and that's kind of how I played. And you know, it kind of transitions probably in you know early two thousands mm-hmm. um, or you know early 2010, 11, 12, where it kind of changed. And I still had that mentality. It was fine for me if I kept an internal, you know, and, and then let stuff in. And mm-hmm. now being the catching coordinator it opens my eyes to a lot of different things that we need, but also keeping that, that mindset on the side of a catcher, not letting anybody score. Well, sure. how do I do that? You know, is it, is it framing? Is it blocking? Is it throwing? It, it's all of them. Sure. You know, understanding a lot of different things, but also being a catcher, I've learned that you have to deal with a lot of different people as pitchers, you know? Oh yeah. Um, some guys are hard headed. Some guys are easy to get along with. Some guys are, you know, mm-hmm. need a hug. Some need guys need a, a slap. Yeah. And that's how I kind of approach some of this stuff is like, you know, filter out what is the best thing for me, but also for my kids or the guys that are here and how to teach that and how to have them understand that there is ways to look at everything. Sure. And Corky, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I see some of the the ways they do it today. I see sometimes these guys catch a pop-up with one hand and I've seen them drop them. Now, when I was playing, if they did that, by the time he got in the dugout, uh, the pitcher would probably be slapping him or hitting him in the face for dropping a ball like that, catching the ball one hand or, you know, so if the game has changed, I I get it. You know what? It's, it's, it's not always the right way, the way, the way I did it or whatever. So I understand that. I wanted to ask you a question about the catching part of it, because this is what you do. I see a lot of the catchers now down on one knee and, you know, with guys in, in scoring position, is that the way they do it today? Or is there an advantage to doing it that way? Or, you know, what am I not getting? Yeah. So your thought process when I first started, so 2014, 15, when I first became the catching coordinator, the catching instructor, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, God, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not going to one knee. It's lazy. It looks <laughs> lazy, but JR House, our big league catching uh, coach up there, and I kind of talked it through and and went through some different scenarios and and saw what it does and, uh-huh. and you know kind of changed my perspective because we had a couple guys that were not really good framers, not really good blockers, got it, average throwers, and then we went down to one knee and they became a little bit better framer, they became mm-hmm. a little bit better blocker, mm-hmm. and they're still average throwers, but you know it elevated some of their weaknesses. And I think that it will make some guys better and it also hurts some guys. So it's yeah. kind of an individual basis. And got it. as long as they're giving me reasons why they're doing it, you sure. know, not just because everybody's doing it. Mm-hmm. Like if you become better by doing it, then I'm, we're going to work on it. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And it's like, you know, when they talk about all the analytics and whatnot, being an old school player some myself, I think you'd be crazy not to use the analytics. I mean, the analytics are important. I mean, if it's right there, the numbers don't lie. Those things are important. I, I think it's, like you said, a good blend of baseball acumen by the guy in the dugout and, and the analytics, too. I think that makes a well-rounded, better team, right? Be not yeah. so not to no use doubt. it. No doubt. I mean, you just like anything, you know, even when you played, they could say something, uh, well, he's hitting 300, but he doesn't hit homers. Sure. Or, 
Yep. You know, this guy's hitting 240, but he hits homers and, sure. and you can skew whatever you want and you can still mm-hmm. skew these numbers and analytics, even though they're there. Mm-hmm. It's how you process the people that are using the numbers to make an argument for or against somebody. And that's what I have a hard time with. If we just do one or the other. Sure. You know, I, we I go, got it. hey, this guy on analytics is is not good, but he's really good on the field. You know, you got to have a balance on both yeah. on how you're evaluating players. Absolutely. Let's take a brief break for our sponsor. Thanks to Goya for their support of today's episode. It's no wonder Goya's commitment to excellence is the cornerstone of the company credo. If it's Goya, it has to be good. This simple yet deeply resonant pledge is the evolution of Goya Foods as a leader in the Latin American food industry and a trusted American brand. Al Hendrickson Toyota, it's always worth the drive. When you make the drive to Al Hendrickson Toyota, you're getting an experience that will make you want to return again and again. Visit in person in South Florida or visit online to see the inventory of new, pre-owned, and certified pre-owned vehicles, proving Al's got it all at every step of the car buying process. Wherever you may be shopping from, Al's got value, Al's got selection, Al's got deals, Al's got service, Al's got the right team. It's always worth the drive to Al Hendrickson Toyota. Al Hendrickson Toyota is the number one volume Toyota dealer in the Southeast region. Online at alhendricksontoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And now, back to our conversation. You know what I really hope? I hope the speed game comes back because that's what I did. I mean, I was a leadoff hitter. I loved stealing bases. I think it puts so much energy in the game and it moves the game along. And do you think we're going to see that speed game? I mean, being a catcher and teaching these guys the the finer parts of catching, is that part of the game still really important? The guy that can really have a good pop time down to second base because there's not as many people stealing bases today. So what emphasis is there for catchers? Yeah, you know, especially with the the talk, uh, the automated strike zone. And, you know, we have that at the Florida State League, which is low A, mm. you know, and they're talking about 2024 having it all the way through the minors and maybe the big leagues. So framing is going to go away. Mm. The next big thing is blocking and throwing guys out. We put a big emphasis starting this year on back picks and throwing guys out and making sure that we, we are controlling the running game, even though people don't want to steal. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when they don't want to steal, they just think they're invisible at first or yes. second. And we try to make it known that we see them. Right. And we had a guy this year, he back picked 10 times in one game, was picked one guy off. He's one for 10. <laughs> but now every time they go in to play that team or as they go higher, they're going to remember, hey, these guys love to pick. We yeah. got to watch what we're doing on the bases. And that's how I want it to be. I want everybody to steal. You sure. know, I'd, I'd love to steal because we work on it. And that's one of the best things you can do because everybody knows it. You sure. might be able to block 10 balls and nobody cares until you miss a block. And then they're like, oh, yeah. well, why didn't you block it? Sure. You know? Yeah. And also those guys that can block so well, it gives confidence to the pitchers to throw that off speed stuff when there's somebody on third base. Hey, my catcher's yeah. going to block that ball if I bury it here in the dirt. So that's going to help me get some swing and miss out of the hitters, too. Yeah, 100%. And also, another thing, Corky, too, is is uh, you're in an organization that has a unbelievably great tradition. Going back to Johnny Bench as one of the greatest catchers ever. What kind of standards is kind of in there for your organization as far as catching goes? 
Yeah, uh, we, we talk about Johnny a lot, and we try to get him out. You know, he's in Jupiter. Our team is in Daytona, so I try to have him come out every once in a while. And he's a big name, big, sure. big, big person, you know, talks really loud. So we try to hold a standard for that way. Mm-hmm. And the other guys that have come through there as well, you know, like every time they talk about the Reds, they talk about Johnny Bench, who's the catcher. Mm-hmm. will be one of the best catchers to ever play the game mm-hmm. and for sure for the Reds. So, you know, we try to put an emphasis like, hey, if you want to knock somebody off, you got to knock off Johnny Bench, which you don't play for a team for 20 years anymore. But mm-hmm. sure, they're nobody going to have the numbers like he had in Cincinnati. Right. So but yeah, it's a good tradition. He's a good guy. And anytime he's around, it's it's a fun time. Absolutely. I got to ask you some about your minor league experiences. Like I said before, I loved my minor league experiences and I wouldn't change it for anything. It helped me on field, off the field. It, it was such a growing experience. What are the, some of the things that you can add to our listeners that, that they can take away from hearing you talk about some of those things that you did in the minor leagues or some funny experiences or just some odd things that kind of made you kind of wonder or kind of say, huh, I didn't know that about the minor leagues. It's funny. I talk to these guys a lot when they ask me about the minor leagues and what we did and, I barely remember any of the games. I barely remember any at-bats. And that's over 2,000 games or something like that that I played in. So Mm -hmm. probably 4,000 games or something that I I watched. And Mm -hmm. I remember bits and pieces here and there. But what I remember is, like you said, the clubhouse, the bus rides, (laughs) the stuff that went on at at team parties. It was stuff that we just – I just, I don't take for granted. I, I loved every minute of it. I, I remember we were in Rockford and A-Ball and one of the best teams I've ever been on. It had, a, you know, Adam Dunn, Austin Kearns, Gookie Dawkins, um, <laughs> uh, Dwayne Wise. And we were, I think, 45 and 27 in the first half. And wow. I, we there was nothing to do in Rockford. So it was after the game, we all lived in the same apartment building because it was the only apartment building there. And we go to somebody's apartment, play cards until two or three. Wow! Every Sunday, every Sunday we'd have a, a team barbecue at the clubhouse there, where I mean the whole team. And you Jeez. don't see that any no anymore at all. That's wonderful. That's how we were, and I mean we're still close to. I mean I'm still close with almost everybody on that team. Yeah. You know through text threads or fantasy football that we're still doing, and it's just those type of things that that I relish and, and wish that guys did nowadays where I had some of the kids go, Hey, you know, how do we get on a winning streak? Mm. And I'm like, I don't know. You play better. But first of all, it's like those inside jokes that the whole team will do. Yes. You know, like yeah, right. you, you might have two or three guys that have those inside jokes and something happens, they laugh. But when something happens and the whole team can laugh because it's inside joke, then the game just becomes you know, it just becomes better. You play yes. better. You feel better. There's no doubt. You know, and, and, and you know what I'm saying? Some of them oh, are, yes. you can talk about, some of them you can't right. talk about, but <laughs> you can still say them right now on a text and everybody will just, will just laugh. Do you, and, do you and, find, do you find that like when you see these guys or, you know, you run into them, whatever, it, it, it's like time has stood still and, you know, you're still, you know, finishing each other's sentences and you, you just know people that's like your, it's like your family. I mean, really you're with yeah. them more than your family, right? I can go yeah. through some of the, some of the managers I had, some of the majors, but a lot of them in the Meyer leagues, Corky, yeah. I had a stump, a Bucky Mac 
another buck, a stand that was just like Mr. Magoo, a Dallas. I could go through, I could go, I don't know if you remember Stan Wozniak, but he was the king of the miners. He was exactly a carbon copy of Mr. Magoo. And he was our yeah. manager. And uh, I mean, and some of the stories that you tell people, they, they wouldn't believe it. They, they wouldn't believe yeah. it. They'd have to see it. Do you find that the same thing in, in your uh, experiences in the miners? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there's some stuff that's happened that probably can get some guys in trouble now, but you know, it was, it was stuff that <laughs> yes. everybody like, no way you guys did that. And I'm yeah. like, Oh I yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. I Where mean, you know, I just played golf yesterday with one, one of the guys I used to play with and he would tell stories that I would forgot about. And yeah. we were all laughing. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't remember that, but now I do. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's just, it's stuff that you can go on and on yeah. and on. Yeah. Hey, Corky, I got I to gotta lay one quick before we go. I got to lay this one on you and see if you experienced anything like this. Maybe you have one you can tell yeah. me. In A-Ball, we had a, our manager, Stan Wozniak. We, he looked exactly like Mr. Magoo. And he was 85 yeah. years old, about thereabout. He's called the king of the minors. And he won more games than anybody in minor league baseball. And this one guy, actually, it was Terry Sutcliffe, Rick Sutcliffe's brother, was on yeah. our team. And he was just drafted out of, out of Missouri. And his parents were driving driving all the way from Missouri to watch him pitch his first professional game in a ball. And he was out there and poor guy was just got lit up. He just got everything he threw. They hit, he didn't miss a bat and Stan Wozniak waddled out to the mound and he was about five foot six. And again, the picture of Mr. Magoo, that was him. And he put his hand out like this and says, okay, give me the ball, Terry. That's it. And, and Terry Sutcliffe said, no, I'm not coming out of the game stand. It was like the second inning. They had like seven runs already. He says, I'm not yeah. coming out of the game. He says, look, Terry, just give me the ball. Terry said, Stan, I'm not going to do it. My parents drove all the way from Missouri down here to Florida. I'm not coming out of this game. I'm going to keep pitching. And Stan, everybody saw him reaching for the ball. So he was asking him to come out of the game. So Stan, to save his own reputation, he put his hands back out and he says, okay, well, just let me rub it then. <laughs> That's what he said to Terry. And Terry stayed in the game. I think he gave up 11 runs, but he was not coming out of the game because his parents drove from Missouri down to Florida to watch him play. But that's kind of the stuff that people don't see that happens in the Myers. Isn't that so? Oh, yeah. I, we had a, the similar thing to that. Uh, Steve, Steve Lamazzi was – I was supposed to catch, and Steve Lamazzi's parents were coming down, and we were in Pawtucket, and – second inning comes up he goes for a pop-up and like he kind of crumbles oh and i'm like oh what the heck's going on and he he goes over back behind the plate and the trainer goes out and he's like sitting there talking to me stretching you know and i'm like what what happened he goes oh he's he's cramping up oh this is the second inning yeah and he's like well i said oh no i better start stretching right? right so i start stretching he comes back out you know he gets the third out comes in i'm like what's up and he's like oh, i'm cramping up I'm like, do I need to get ready? He goes, no, man, my parents came down. I, I got to play. <laughs> Next day, he, he does the same thing, pop up, and he just cramps and falls on the ground and rolls. I don't know if you've ever been to Pawtucket, but it's just a flat dugout. Okay. And he just rolls into the dugout. <laughs> he goes, all right, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> you rolled into the dugout. Yeah. Jeez. But, you know, he, he knew he should have came out the inning before. Yeah. 
Yeah. And he was, it was, it was one of those things. I just like, man, he, he tried, he tried hard, he tried man. Hard. Hey, if you're rolling into the dugout, you're trying hard. <laughs> I'll just yeah. tell you what. All right. Well, Corky, listen, we want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we know you're right in the middle of a bunch of work you're doing down in Arizona for the draft camp, but thank you so much for coming on. I know uh, there, we're going to have a lot of people, especially two stints with Cincinnati and five different teams. And now you're back with them working there as, as a coach. So thank you so much for coming on Corky. Really appreciate it. Oh, man, I appreciate you, Stephen. Thanks for everything you do. And if you ever need me back on, I'll I'll be happy to do it. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks thanks again, Corky. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please give us a positive review, subscribe, and share the program. Also, be sure to listen to my Sacks in the Morning shorts three days a week for a couple of minutes of uplifting suggestions to get your day off to a great start. Our music is performed by my adorable niece, Elena Jane. And remember, to reach your goals and your dreams, follow your emotional heart. Good Greek Moving and Storage, your superhero movers. Good Greek Moving and Storage exists to provide you an extraordinary moving experience, period. They make the ethos of their every step from the moment of your first phone call all the way to the placement of your last end table in your new home. A stress-free, positive experience. Offering concierge services to answer all your questions, you can trust Good Greek Moving and Storage and Spiro the Hero with all your relocation needs. Good Greek Moving and Storage is the official movers of the Florida Gators, Florida Panthers, Tampa Bay Bucks, Miami Heat, Miami Marlins, Florida International University, and the University of Miami. And thanks to Al Hendrickson Toyota for their support of this podcast. And be sure to visit alhendricksontoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Thanks to Goya for their support of today's episode. It's no wonder Goya's commitment to excellence is the cornerstone of the company credo. If it's Goya, it has to be good.